0: In this episode, C.J. Pasco, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon, joins us to discuss the ethnographic research she conducted for her award-winning book, Dude, You're a Fag, Masculinity and Sexuality in High School. We discuss the joys of being an ethnographer, the difficulties of accessing youth culture, and how entering the school allowed C.J. a more nuanced understanding of contemporary masculinity. Thank you for joining us today, CJ.
1: Thanks for having me. It's so exciting.
0: So we're here to talk about ethnographic research. If you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it? Uh, I
1: describe it as hanging out. Right, that's that's a term I use a lot when I uh, talk to audiences who aren't necessarily familiar with academic research in general and ethnographic research in particular. Uh, When I talk about my ethnographic research, I often describe it as you know hanging out with kids and taking notes on what I hear, and and that's it's a pretty basic formulation of what ethnography is, but really it's a way of getting into a particular institution, culture, social circle... Group of people who who gather for for any particular reason in a in a particular space, right? Uh, that you see you see the social thing, and you want to know more about it, and so you become part of that social scene wherever that social scene is. And and in my uh, case, it's often schools. I do most of my ethnographic research in schools or or in the world of of kids, which is often shaped by schools. So it really consists of you know, hanging out in a school, following the kids where, where they go after school and, and taking notes on the sorts of things they're they're doing and, and asking them what sort of things I should be paying attention to. So really letting letting the people who I'm interested in knowing about be the experts in a particular situation and, and point me to the, the important parts of, of a particular
0: social setting. Your book, Dude, You're a Fag, Masculinity and Sexuality in High School, it's a great example of ethnographic research. When you were working on this project, what were your central research questions, or or perhaps you had more of a guiding topic?
1: You know, the central research question uh, that I started with uh, for the dude book was how do contemporary teenage boys think of masculinity. What does masculinity mean to them? And this really grew out of research I had been doing since I'd been a senior in college. It grew out of the senior thesis that I, I conducted um, uh, when I was a uh, uh, in college at Brandeis University. I was really interested in young men's understandings of, of masculinity, right? Given that we had had three waves of feminist activism and things had seemingly changed for girls femininity had undergone some some cultural changes i was really interested in in what cultural changes masculinity had undergone if if any and so that was really the guiding question i wanted to get in get into a setting where there were a lot of boys and a setting where there are a lot of boys is a public school and to just ask them, you know, what what does masculinity mean to you? But not just ask them; also watch how they navigated meanings and expectations and understandings of masculinity. Thus, the ethnographic approach.
0: Was this a case where you had a topic in mind and then you found the method that worked, or did you come into the project knowing you wanted to do an ethnography and then you found a topic that was suitable?
1: Right. So that's actually a really interesting question. So the The topic uh came first uh, the this question about how do contemporary young men understand uh, and enact masculinity, and in fact, I had asked that same question for my master's research, which I had done before um my dissertation research and the dissertation research is what ended up turning into this book, Dude, uh, you're a fag. So, for my master's research, I had the same question, right? How do contemporary young men understand what it means to be masculine? But I used uh, interviewing as a method rather than um, ethnography. And what that meant was I interviewed about 20 middle and working class uh, high school students, uh, male high school students, about their definitions of masculinity. And I actually was frustrated by the final product. They opened up, right, uh, which was a question a lot of people asked me. Well, how are you going to get young guys to talk to you, right? You're the sort of 20-something woman. How are you going to get these young men to talk to you? You know, teenage boys are notorious for not talking. And and that was a problem. These, these young men opened up. They told me all sorts of interesting stories. They were very vulnerable in our, our conversations. However, the stories they told me about what it meant to be masculine in some ways were profoundly unsatisfying. It was almost as if they were answering in ways they expected a Berkeley researcher to um, approve of, if that makes sense. I would say something like, well, what does it mean to be you know, a young man in today's world? And they would answer with something like, well, you can be anything. Guys can do anything. Girls can do anything, right? This sort of very... Um, Liberal answer, right? That that we're all these sort of independent human beings who can make our own choices, and yay, equality. Yeah. Um, and I, it just didn't feel like I was getting a, at some of the conflicts that young men um, perhaps might feel around their gender identity. I just didn't quite buy that, uh, given all the research on gender identity, that it was quite that coherent or seamless, if that makes sense. And so. One of the reasons I ended up choosing ethnography for the uh, for my dissertation research for for dude w- was to get at uh, another way of of understanding young men's definitions of masculinity to see how they enacted it, not just how they verbalized it right because you know we're not always the best as human beings on reflecting on our own experience and and when we're asking people questions, we're asking them to reflect fully on their own experience in ways that aren't always reasonable to expect of other people, I think.
0: Would you be willing to talk a little bit more about how your methodological choice fit with your theoretical framing of the question? And I'm, I'm particularly curious with your case because of the way you reconceptualize masculinity and how you're, you're, through the data, you're critiquing previous engagements with the topic.
1: I mean, what was really interesting was that when... When I started watching young people um, and their gendered practices and enactments, and also then listening to what they were saying you know, in their reflections about gendered meanings and practices, I didn't always see and hear things that were congruent with one another. So I'd see these young men homophobically harass one another, right? Um, call each other fag, call each other gay, And then when we'd have, I'd do an interview with some man who would engage in in some of that sort of harassment, and I'd ask him about homophobia, and he'd be like, oh, no, you know, gay guys should totally be able to get married. And so there's this real disjuncture between what I was seeing uh, in my interviews with these young men and what they were doing when they were together. And I think that speaks to the framing of the research project itself in that, you know, when you ask... You know, how do young men understand masculinity, right? There's not a singular answer, right? There are ways in which they understand and enact masculinity in groups, and there are ways in which they understand and enact masculinity in these one-on-one conversations. And I, I think that tells us a lot about how gender operates and, and the role of, of power relations in enacting particular gender norms, right? That what they're doing with one another is really sort of this performative acts of dominance, right? I'm going to show you what a man I am through these particular enactments. And when they were with me, they were sort of enacting this this sort of different style of masculinity, this sort of new age, sensitive guy, kinder, gentler masculinity. And I think that really sort of gets at why a plurality of methods could be really helpful, right? That is not just about these observations in which you're imputing meaning to people's behaviors. And it's not just about interviews when you, you're only asking them about their meaning, right? But it's about looking at the behaviors and their meaning-making processes and grappling with the two, and perhaps even sort of holding up a mirror to your respondents and saying, wow, I hear you're saying this, but you're doing this. Um, how, how can we make sense of that? And then giving them something to reflect on versus expecting them to have already done all that reflection previous to the interview, which is often what, what interviewing, I- interviewers expect of their respondents.
0: So how did you go about finding the research site for the project? And I'm really interested in that question of access since you're entering schools and interacting with children.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's this interesting question, right? But when you are an ethnographer of childhood, which is what I am and, and you want to research kids, that's sort of this weird proposition, right? We, it, it, when you start to think about like, wow, where can I go hang out and be around a bunch of kids? You know, it raises a lot of questions about the kind of society we live in. And we live in an incredibly age-graded society where kids and adults are really kept separate from one another. And kids are really sort of kept confined, um, especially as of late, right? That that we confine kids in in private spaces and really keep them out of public spaces, you know, presumably for their own safety, but also, I think, as a form of of control, right? That it terrifies some adults to, to let kids roam free. And so, when it came to choosing a site, right, a school wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion for me. But as I started to think about where, where can I hang out with kids? I well, could I go to a video game parlor? Those still sort of existed when I was doing this research at the beginning. I'd go to a skate park. I could maybe go to a mall, but lots of malls are cracked now, and kids hang out. You know, libraries don't let kids hang out. Where was I going to go, right? And so eventually that led me to think, well, you know, I got to be in a school. That's where we, you know, house masses of, of young people. And so that's that's where I'm going to go. And it's also where they spend most of their waking hours. And so I figured I could use the school as a site to then sort of follow the kids, at least metaphorically, to places outside of the school. But it does lead to this very sort of school-centric bias and a lot of research on, on young people, um, my own research included. And getting in a school is really, really tough. Uh, and understandably so, don't necessarily want outsiders to come on in and say, hey, hey, come come look at our educational practices, right? I mean, schools are such heavily surveilled sites uh, at this point and are blamed for so many social ills that they don't necessarily want an outsider in. So I contacted, gosh, I think 50 schools to uh, propose this research.
0: So it was just a, a kind of every school within the, that made logistical sense in terms of where you were located?
1: That, that's a good question. I was located in the San Francisco Bay Area and I specifically didn't want a school in the Bay Area proper, if that makes sense, right? The San Francisco Bay Area is a very... Uh, unique spot politically, right? It's known to be pretty liberal um, and pretty left of center. And I wanted to sort of get away from that. I think Berkeley High is perhaps one of the most overstudied high schools in the country. Um, so I really wanted to, to move away from that. So I actually expanded my radius um, and didn't look at, I think about 45 minutes outside of the San Francisco Berkeley area was when I, uh, where I cast my net, right? 45 minutes and beyond. Um, and I looked for schools, my ideal school had a racial breakdown that roughly mirrored California's racial breakdown at large, and the school I ended up with was relatively close to that. Um, And I also wanted to be in a working slash middle class school. I I didn't want to be at at an elite school. Um, And I also didn't necessarily want to be in an urban school, um, an urban environment. And one of the things that um, I offered to all schools, because I think ethnographers, when they're asking people for favors, should always try to, to respond or offer back whatever they, they can. And so one of the things I offered was free SAT tutoring to students. Uh, it was something I did on the side to put myself through graduate school. And I also offered to talk to students about college application processes or review their college uh, application essays. And then some of them took me up on it. The the school that eventually let me in did not have me do anything formal, but a lot of different students that I talked to, some of whom did grant me interviews, but others were just kids in the school, um, did take me off, up on the, uh, the offer to help them with some of their college materials.
0: Did you face any unexpected or surprising barriers when once you entered the school and you were trying to gather this data? I feel like every day was an
1: unexpected or surprising <laughs> barrier, quite frankly. All right, that's sort of the nature of, of ethnography, which is like, you're just stepping into this environment that is totally not your environment. You're trying to figure out what the norms are, you're trying to figure out who the people are. So one of my favorite examples of how so jarring it is to, to get into a sort of mini society that is not your own is you know early on in my my research I showed up at the school site and I was wearing my standard research gear which uh, consisted of baggy cargo pants which were in style at that time black fitted T-shirt you know just one of those Gap T-shirts you know I was wearing my little combat boots and um, a messenger bag right slung sort of diagonally over my my back and. And I was walking down the hallway and I hear behind me this loud, booming voice saying, hey, hey, you there, where's your hall pass? And I turned around and maybe you know, it was one of the school uh, safety officers. I had school safety officer. And I was like, ah, I'm a researcher. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> a student, right? And so it was this really interesting and first moment of many in which I got sort of misrecognized. And that's incredibly jarring when you're doing research, right? This. The, the teachers often thought I was a new student. Every once in a while, they think I was a substitute teacher. The students thought I was any, anybody from a new student to somebody's aunt to somebody's mom. So they couldn't figure out who I was. And so the, the constant misrecognition was incredibly jarring personally, and it really illustrated the way in which he, our audience really gives us our identity, right? That sort of Gothmanian approach to, to identity. To be misread constantly is, is very, <laughs> very psychologically jarring.
0: Was there any point where you were introduced to some of the students by one of the officials who gave you permission, or was it really just, all right, you have access, go do your thing?
1: It was really, you have access, go do your thing. The principal said to me, I have five years till retirement, what are they going to do? Fire me? That was his, that was his way of letting me into the school. And, And I think one of the reasons they let me in was because there had been some sort of incident in which a young woman had been sexually assaulted by uh, multiple members of the school football team and this is one of those schools where the football team is re- rules the school in a particular sense and and so the school was on the one hand deeply concerned about about what was going on with their boys but on the other hand didn't want me to ask students about sexuality nor did they ever ask me what I was finding or respond to my findings when I gave them some so it was a very strange situation in which I sort of constantly felt like I was trespassing on the school, on school property. But yet every time I checked in with administrators, there was like, they were like, great. Glad you're, Get doing well, and I was like, okay. So how I, I got introduced to students was the school psychologist, for lack of a better term, introduced me to a few teachers who had, to her mind, large portions of boys in her class, or in their classes. So it meant I ended up in a couple of remedial classes and in auto shop. And then I actually wrote notes to all the jun- all the teachers who were teaching junior and senior level classes and asked if I could come introduce myself. And so I went around to a good number of classes and said, hey, I'm CJ, I'm a student at Berkeley, I'm writing, I would say things like I'm writing a book on what boys think about masculinity. And and then from there, I sort of forged friendships with students and, and they would take me around and introduce me to other students. I, I would say another, I, one more example of something that was uh, definitely a challenge was there's a group of girls who wouldn't talk to me at first, um I call them in the book the basketball girls and it was a group of girls on the basketball team and they were super tough right they were all tall because they were basketball players and I'm very short they were also just they had this like swagger and they were incredibly athletic and they you know I would watch them walk down the hallway and just bang on lockers and make a ton of noise and uh, their voices were loud and they would, I'd watch them torment boys by like throwing things over boys' heads that boys couldn't catch because they were taller than so many of the boys. And and I just couldn't find a way to get in with them, right? They just wouldn't talk to me. I was sort of a non-person for them. And um, eventually I got in with a cheerleader who was friends with the girlfriend of one of the basketball girls. And so, so I got the basketball girls to sort of talk to me through that route, which I think highlights the importance of sort of networking in, in your field site. And and indeed, when I would sit down and talk to the basketball girls, one of them, you know, before she really talked to me, was like, so have you, uh, so have you ever gotten in a fight like oh wow okay because you know I haven't gotten in a fight but I managed to tell a story about you know this guy who stole my partner's bike and I found him and pulled him off the bike and, and so that was as close as I've ever been to a fight and it I guess it made me look tough enough and then she asked me you know if I hit someone do I hit with a fist or do I slap them right so these real sort of tests of of who I was and and could she sort of trust me? Um, was I a safe person for her to talk to, right? Uh, or was I going to sort of judge her particular enactment of, of gender? So th- those were things I didn't necessarily anticipate.
0: How do you know when you've spent enough time in the site? And this is a question that students often ask when they're first being exposed to ethnography, you know, do I need to spend a month there? Or do I have to spend 20 years in the same site? When do you get that feeling that, all right, it's it's time to get out of here and move on to writing and sharing these findings? That's a
1: great question. You know, a month is not long enough. I will say that. You know what? I do think different sites have different uh, time limits, right? There's no sort of ironclad answer. There there are anthropologists who spend their entire career studying the same site. That's sort of this lifetime-long ethnography. I took my first methods class in sociology with uh, Kristen Luker. And I remember her saying, when your lips start to move when your respondents are talking to you, because you already know the answer, and you can do that with just about every respondent, then you're done. And so on the one hand, it's just this kind of sense. right? And, and I know for me, what happened was that, you know, I'd been in the site for quite a while, I had had time to sort of start reflecting on my field notes and memoing about them. And I started trying out some of my theories about what I was seeing on the students. So I'd say, I'd say, huh? I'm having these ideas about homophobia that it's not really about like not liking gay guys. Is that right? And then you know, I'd sort of try that out and see what they thought about it and get their feedback on what it was I thought I was seeing. And and I think by the time you're you're at a point where you can actually. So start making some claims and then run those claims, if appropriate, it's not appropriate in every field site, but um, run some of those claims by the folks that, that you're observing and see what they think about them. You're sort of getting to the point where you can start thinking about exiting the field. That said, you know, you're never going to answer every question. In my, I think it's chapter three, I wrote a whole chapter on heterosexuality. I still have so many questions about that chapter that my entire next book grew out of that chapter. Right. So it's not about, you know, sufficiently answering all the questions, but it's about sort of having enough familiarity with the site and enough evidence that you've drawn from the site that you can start to make some claims and, and feel relatively certain that if somebody else were in that site, they'd be like, yeah, I could see how you found that. Right. Okay, Yeah, I got that.
0: You've mentioned your field notes, which brings up the question, how do you know what counts as data when you're in the field? And then once you manage to decide what observations count, how do you go by analyzing them?
1: Oh, that's a great question. The first thing I'll say about qualitative work in general and ethnographic work in particular is that we don't talk nearly enough about the steps between collecting your data and writing up your final product. Um, again, to go back to Kristen Luker, she used to refer to that as how the sausage is made, which I always love and always makes me laugh. The data analysis process took a lot longer than I anticipated. I spent, I believe, about six months just analyzing my data. And so, you know, what what does data analysis mean when it comes to ethnography and and how how does your data analysis sort of interact with sociological theory, right? How, how do those two things relate? So first, uh, you know, part of what happens when you're doing ethnography is that, you know, you take field notes every day, you're constantly writing things down. I would come home and have my hand covered in, in certain notes being like, oh, you got to remember that this is something you saw today, right? When I didn't have like a notebook on me or it wasn't appropriate to have a notebook out. Um, usually I carried something little in my back pocket where I would jot down a lot of things. And then on my way home, I would talk for the the entire hour. This place is about an hour away from my house. I would talk for the entire hour into a tape recorder, just sort of dumping everything into the tape recorder. And then I would spend a good four hours every evening, at least four hours, typing up my field notes, right? So I would come home with scribbles all over my hands, what i had recorded on the tape recorder, and what I'd scribbled on my different pieces of paper, and just type, 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 type. But as you're typing, you're already starting your analysis, right? That you're putting in notes in your field notes in which you're already starting to reflect upon them, right? So you're writing things like, like, well, today I saw Betty slap a boy for calling her a whore. Oh, follow up on this, right? When do girls react to sexual insults and when when do they not, right? So already sort of taking a little step back there and and giving that a category, right? I, I named it sexual insult. And so that's that sort of first analytic step. And then sort of a second analytic, Step is as you're in the field doing these ref- more formal reflective memos on a fairly regular basis. So I, I think about once a month I would do a memo that just riffed on different things I thought I was seeing that month. And then when I finally left the field, that's when I sat down with, and it was out of those reflective memos that I started to to sort of try out these pet theories on the, on the kids I was studying. But then when I left the field, I sat down with Excel and I went through all of my field notes and all of my interviews and started open coding, right? So coming up with initial categories for all the evidence that I, I was looking at. And I had an Excel sheet for each code that I eventually developed. And then I listed all the other codes that also pertain to that particular topic on that in little, it's hard to sort of explain verbally, but, but in little boxes next to the chunk of text, I'd have all the, the codes that pertain to that particular chunk of text. So it was a very clunky system, but I actually really think it worked quite, quite well. And then after I coded everything, then you go back and you do another round of coding, right? You refine your codes, you, you sort of Abstract, um, you move to the next level of ab- abstraction, right? That it's not just these sort of descriptive codes but uh, the codes move in a more sort of analytic direction. And that's where you can start really then moving to theory, right? So I'm seeing these sort of analytic codes, right? So how can I move from that to, to what other scholars have said about this particular topic? Uh, and then you sort of have this dialogue back and forth with, well, this is what the literature says, but this is what I'm seeing. And, and one of the places where I really saw that, that happen was, I, I would say, two places. One was the sort of actual definition of masculinity that most of the masculinity literature talked about how masculinity was what men do. And that was either an explicit definition or or latent assumption and most of the literature on masculinity and here i was in the setting where kids were like girls can be masculine too look at all these girls being masculine right and so this i began this dialogue then between what the literature sort of said or assumed uh, versus what the kids i was studying were saying about um, girls doing masculinity and then the other the other time i really remember this engagement between theory and and my findings were when i started to deal with homophobia because most of the literature, again, up until that point, were like, guys are homophobic. Homophobia is something central to being a guy. Guys don't like gay men, right? You know, the quantitative literature said it, the qualitative literature said it. And then here I was dealing with these guys who were like, oh, yeah, no, we don't really, like, hate gay people. It just means that you're not a man, right? So really trying to untangle what these guys were talking about, this sort of gendered homophobia, that they were both sort of homophobic and not homophobic at the same time, um, and that what they were were sort of constantly engaging in was gender policing, that sometimes took a homophobic form, but didn't always mean homophobia in the way we had meant it traditionally. And so really grappling with that, that kind of stuff.
0: This might be a difficult question to answer, but I'm wondering with those two findings or those two examples you just discussed, do you think they were a result of some sort of cultural shift that's happened? Or do you think rather your ethnographic approach allowed you to get at something that previous research just simply missed?
1: You know, that's a great question. Um, I would say for the girls enacting masculinity, I would say that was something about the method because we've always had girls who've acted like boys, right? Oh, God, I can't believe I just said we've always. (laughs) Um, But I would say since the development of a sociology of masculinity literature, which is, you know, all of what, 20 or 30 years? The more proper
0: academic way to frame it.
1: (laughs) Right. We've, since the beginning of time, yeah. I, you know, there have been girls who, who have acted like boys, certainly since since the more academic discussion of masculinity has, has been occurring, yet we haven't talked about them, right? Or if we have talked about them, it's been a sort of, oh, tomboys, right? As a sort of life phase that girls sort of grow out of. And we hadn't actively theorized what it meant, what it would mean if a female-bodied person enacted uh, what we think of as uh, some sort of social meanings or social behaviors that we would code as masculine, right? And the the first person to really take that on was was Judith Halberstam, um, and and that work comes out of cultural studies, but. Sociologists hadn't really taken that on, and and so I would suggest that sociologists hadn't taken that on because of the way in which we perhaps have resisted or, or were resisting, less so now, these sort of deconstructive moves to, to question the very categories of analysis upon which our discipline depends. And when you do ethnography, that that is a great chance for you to listen to your respondents and observe your respondents and watch them question the very categories that you have brought with you to the field right so i do think that was the the highlighting of girls who act like boys and the fact that masculinity might not be limited to men's bodies that was very much tied to that finding was very much tied to the method i used right the, the graphic method now in terms of homophobia i think and boys homophobia and these sort of nuanced meanings of homophobia I think some of it was a result of a culture of a few different cultural shifts, and some of it was a result of of the method. So in terms of cultural shifts, we have this idea that that, you know, girls can do anything boys can do. So the resonance of these insults that boys used to use, you know, oh, you throw like a girl or your uh, pussy, right, which was another term that was popular, at least when I was growing up, those sort of have lost their cultural resonance a little bit, not fully, and also with the visibility of gay men, right, that they, these young men that I was interviewing actually knew what a gay man was, right, whereas previous generations might not have been as familiar with, you know, who a gay man actually was, right? And then the messages of the gates of the mainstream gay rights movement, which is you know we're men and women who are gendered totally normally, just like you, right? Sort of you know, didn't necessarily challenge these young men's usage of of um, emasculating insults. So on the one hand, it's a cultural shift. On the other hand, I do think that the ability to look at these boys' enactments of homophobic behaviors or what looked, looked like homopho- homophobic behaviors and then talking to them um, in which they really complicate the meanings of homophobia, bringing those two things together, so doing ethnographically informed interviews, really helped to sort of undergird that uh, finding about the, the complicated nature of the relationship between masculinity and homophobia.
0: That leads into the next question I wanted to ask you, and that relates to this idea of generalizability. And that's a central concept when students are first learning about research methodology but they often struggle with you know how does that relate to ethnography where it's it's so focused on the on the depth of the case and the detail so how did you deal with that concept when you were working on this project
1: right right generalizability oh yeah this is a question i get asked a lot cuz you know i studied one one high school and so you know how, how do i know it's not just this particular high school and I don't know that any one study can settle a question of uniqueness, if that makes sense, right? I mean, I think we do fetishize generalizability uh, in terms of social research. Like, can we extend this to the rest of the population? And I'm not sure that I'm a huge fan of that, right? Uh, so often I, I suggest that perhaps generalizability is not the question we need to be asking. <laughs> perhaps what we need, the, the way we need to be thinking of getting at the truth about society, you know, truth with a small T, not a capital T, is that really we need um, what I think of as like a mosaic of studies, right? That the only way we can really think about um, having knowledge about a given society is to have a bunch of different studies from using a bunch of different methods to get at a set of social questions, right? That that in the end will yield a better picture of any given social phenomenon than will one study that can lay claim to generalizability, if that makes sense, because every study has parameters. You know, if you, if you think about uh, uh, say a large scale survey, study that we would consider generalizable. Well, that's a study that in which the variables are already predetermined by the researcher. So who's to say those variables that they're highlighting are even the important ones in the first place, right? That there may be things that didn't even make it on the radar for that particular survey that are the important things that are happening regarding whatever topic they're asking about. And so sure, it might be generalizable in that, yes, most people would answer this way, but the questions asked weren't the important ones. And so I, I, I think that generalizability isn't even necessarily desirable, but rather we need to get at a given phenomenon through a variety of studies using different methods. And then that will yield us more information than aiming at some abstract notion of generalizability. Well,
0: oh, that's a great answer. That's really helpful. And I have another question about one of those central concepts that undergrads learn when they're, when they're first learning about methodology. And it's the idea of positionality. And that seems particularly pertinent to your project where you're headed into these high schools, again, you're you're interacting with these children, Um, you're, you're dealing with questions of sexuality. So how did you address that during the research or even afterwards during the analysis?
1: Yeah, positionality, right? oh, this is something I've been thinking about a lot as I've been preparing to go back to a high school to do more research, you know, and, and I'm much older now. So I think a lot about my age in terms of positionality regarding the kids that, that I research, right? I'm, I'm 41 years old now, and I'm old enough to be their mom now, which I was definitely not when I was doing the research for Dude. And then I did a project, sort of an ethnographically informed project between Dude and the research I'm about to do, in which I was sort of in my mid-30s, and I just had my first kid. So I sort of went, through, I became a parent as I was researching teenagers as well. And, and that was sort of this interesting shift in terms of my positionality. And so, you know, there, there are multiple ways to think, uh, to think about in which I think about my positionality with these kids, right? In terms of my racial position, my particular gendered enactment, both that I'm a woman, but at the time I was researching those kids, I didn't look like sort of the typical women they knew, right? I had short hair, wore baggy pants, that kind of thing. That I'm queer, which can certainly build bridges with with some kids and really sort of drag <laughs> a wedge uh, in, into relationships with others. And, and so the question is how to, I, I think in terms of positionality, how to both reflect on your own positionality and also use it to your advantage. That, that rather than trying to pretend that those differences don't matter, Call attention to them with the kids, right? Use it, use it to your advantage, or whatever you're saying. For me, it's kids, right? Be like, "Huh, we have these differences. That's interesting. What do you think about that? Isn't it weird that I'm like sitting in your school? That's just super strange." <laughs> so just to be really open about it, and and I would say especially with um, young people, right? They're so attuned to any sense of fakeness, for lack of a better term, right? That, like, you know, we all can remember that teacher in high school who's like, I'm going to be cool just like you guys. I'm going to relive my high school days. And you're like, oh, wow, you're kind of a loser. And so to to just sort of acknowledge, right, like, wow, what kind of loser goes back to high school? Me, apparently. And, and to sort of be open about it. And that, you know, in terms of age, to call attention to that. And in terms of gender, you know, to call attention to perhaps I, I, I would do that with kids in terms of my my gendered position be like wow yeah I'm Totally different than some of the girls here. That's weird. And um, then we'd have a conversation about it. Now, in terms of sexuality, when I researched dude, I was not out to the students. When I did my next project, where I researched um, young people's new media use, I was out. I mean, both times I was like out in my own life, but I wasn't out in the field. And in part, that was because when I researched dude, I was I was actually quite scared <laughs> that I would get kicked out of the school
0: uh, if if I were out. That said, so, if, so it might have been more about the adults and even the kids themselves. You're thinking, or
1: I absolutely think it was more about the adults and the kids themselves. You know, the queer kids recognized my uh, style as queer. And so they they had me like nailed right away. And then the non-queer kids were like, I think they just sort of pinned me as a tomboy or something. And... It couldn't really make sense of me, but they knew I liked mountain biking, so that was okay. That was cool. And I thought Jackos was, was funny, so that was okay. It's, but that was this interesting moment where I did actually put some barriers up around who I was as a, as a person. And I think that that's, that's this interesting thing to reflect on uh, in terms of ethnographic work in the age of new media at this point, that... I think ethnographers took for granted for a long time that we could separate our audiences, that I was in control of who knew about my sexuality or I was in control of who knew about my personal life and that I was there to study them. But in an age in which we have these sort of digitized identities and these online social networks, you know, the ability to separate those audiences and carefully craft a particular identity is is a lot harder, actually. Um, that's something ethnographers have to take into account. Is like where the field ends and begins. And it's interesting that, that you asked about my positionality in, in terms of the analysis, because when I first sent out the, the book draft uh, for review, the reviewers really wanted me in in the book. They wanted me to sort of be much more present throughout the text rather than they felt I was too absent. That they wanted more of my positionality throughout the book and and it was something that actually made me a little scared at that point that I I think I hadn't developed enough as a scholar yet that I felt like if I revealed sort of too much about my positionality throughout the text that people wouldn't take it seriously that it would feel more like my own sort of personal story rather than like sort of legitimate scholarly ethnography. And and I think that, that that had a lot to do with the way in which we we assume or we valorize things like objectivity and distance between the observer and the observed right which is something that Dorothy Smith a famous feminist scholar really critiques that we're all a part of what we observe and that our positionality sort of determines what we observe and and I think as I've matured as a scholar that's something I feel much more comfortable with but I think it's really scary when you're first starting out doing scholarship to be so open about your positionality although I would encourage people to do it. I would also acknowledge that it's,
0: it's quite nerve-wracking, at least it was for me. If you don't mind, let's talk a bit more about the book itself. So the book has been successful. There's been two editions. I believe the most recent was in 2011. Um, so it's popular in the classroom. People are very complimentary to the writing. So do you have any advice to give, or were there any tricks that you used to make it more accessible? Um, did you have a particular audience in mind when you were in that stage of the project?
1: Well, I always wanted to be a writer. I had gone to college with the intention of being an English major. I loved to write. I loved to read. Uh, so I think that really shaped how I wrote up my findings. That I, so my early training in writing, although grad school did try to beat it out of me in sociology in general.
0: That's, that speaks highly to the discipline.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I also highly valued good, clear, evocative writing. Arlie Hochschild's writing is in that line. Um, And she was one of my mentors. And so I I thought of myself as a storyteller. So my job here is to tell a story and to tell a good story, you need to be clear. That said, I know that social theory can't always be clear, right? There's a reason that Judith Butler's work is, is tough to get into because she's using language to talk about the existence of language and how language works. And that's very, very hard to do. And that said, I I think that we do need to strive for clarity without oversimplification. And and that was my goal in the book. And so what I did was I sat down with books that I loved and tried to (laughs) emulate them. So I sat down with Arlie Hope Shields' books. I sat down with uh, Women Without Class. Uh, Shades of White was another book that I uh, loved. It was a high school ethnography. And just sort of poured over them and looked at what those authors did and how they told stories and how they brought you into the lives of the people that um, they studied. Oh, and Ain't No Making It. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was that's sort of one of my favorite ethnographies of all time. And and I think it is one of these ethnographies that just draws you in and you're sort of with the hallway hangers and you're with the brothers and you feel so present. And and I think that's the gift of ethnography is that you can bring your reader on this journey with you and put them in that setting because it's storytelling.
0: To conclude, we like to ask our guests to return to that hypothetical classroom we started with where you're presenting this approach to undergraduates who never before heard of it. And first, we'd like to ask you to just reflect on the limitations of ethnography. Um, so thinking back on your project, kind of what are the weaknesses or, or uh, maybe what can you not do?
1: Okay, great. Wow. So the limitations of ethnography. I mean, I think the question about sort of generalizability is one of them. How do you know that you're not seeing this just because of this particular school, right? If I go into a school, am I going to see the same stuff? Is this only local to this one place that you studied? And and absolutely, that's a limitation. I wouldn't go so far, you know, I again, I don't think that generalizability is necessarily this desirable goal. But how do you know this particular case isn't so unique so not to go as far as generalizability but but to sort of suggest that you can fall into the trap of studying a case that's so unique that it doesn't let us know anything about the social world so that is a problem i would say there are things that you just it's just difficult to study ethnographically right there are things that is you just can't be present for exceedingly private behaviors exceedingly dangerous behaviors that it's hard to 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 get into those spaces is, is might come at too great a risk to yourself or your respondents. So there are some things that you just simply can't get at.
0: All right, now the more exciting part. You're standing in front of that room. You've got all these eager undergraduates listening to you. Here's a chance to pitch ethnography. So why this method? Why is this approach they should take to research?
1: What's great about ethnography is there's a rush that i would say you get from the ethnographic experience that stepping into a world that isn't yours and learning about this world and sort of immersing yourself in in a world you know again that isn't yours but it also is yours you have all sorts of connections with whatever world you're studying even if it seems different from your own and and this process of of making those connections and also realizing the differences you know is is a rush in a way. You leave the field and 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 you go back to your sort of familiar surroundings and, and it's just this feel of like, whoa, I'm seeing really cool stuff. This is awesome. And and, and so I, I think that's a feeling that every researcher should should have. I think it also gives such an important voice to folks who don't often have A voice. So so one of the things that that we find with, with research is, for instance, like survey research, the voice is really the voice of the researcher. They have decided what categories are important and what questions shall be answered. And when you're doing ethnography, you're handing that over to your respondents. You're like, you guys tell me what's important. You guys tell me, you know, what's happening in this particular social world. That that you sort of reverse in the best case scenario that that power relationship so that your job is to give a voice to folks who are not, you know, the ones who have been anointed by the university to sort of make pronouncements about the truth of the social world. And I think that is a, is a really cool process um, and I think a politically important process to, to make sure that multiple voices are heard, not just the voice of, of the researcher. I also think ethnography is important because when we're talking about issues of, say, social justice, that there's a, a power in place that doesn't necessarily come through in other kinds of, of research. That is, you know, when you ask me about the story, the process of writing, dude, and 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 the narrative process, there's something about the stories being grounded in a particular place where your readers can sort of like feel that place. They can feel it. They can smell it. They can hear it. That is really important that we might not always remember the specific i don't know statistic or finding but remember the emotions that ethnography sort of pulls in us right and and inspires in us and when we can hook that kind of emotion to social change or to sort of messages about inequality, I think that's really, really powerful because it humanizes the processes that reproduce inequality. And I think that's one of the things that is a gift that ethnographers have, is that we can humanize the process of inequality and perhaps get more people on board with pushing back against the forces that
0: perpetuate inequality. Great. That, that's such a perfect and powerful point to end on. Thank you again for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Of that. course.
1: Thanks for having me. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance.